If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Matthew chapter 7. We're almost done, guys. Oh, we've got maybe, maybe one more week. Um, you know, maybe one more week. Matthew chapter 7, um, let's begin reading in verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but every diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So last week, we, we considered the warning in, in this, this passage about false teachers, where Jesus says, beware. There's a warning there. I told you that in the Greek, that word beware means beware. <laughs> not, not much nuance to it. Watch out. So he says this right after telling us that the narrow gate uh, it leads to life, the hard way leads to life, and the, the broad gate, uh, the easy way leads to destruction. And Jesus says, beware of false prophets because they are ravenous wolves who come to you clothed as sheep. They're going to look like they mean you well, but they don't. Inside, they're out to get you or to cause you destruction. So he means for us to understand a few things because the, the positioning of this statement, beware of false prophets, uh, it comes right after the t discussion about gates is not accidental. I mean, it's on purpose. Jesus is a master teacher. So a few things we're supposed to take from this. Number one, there is a way that leads to life, and there is a way that leads to destruction. Behold, I set before you blessing and cursing. Life and death, therefore, choose life. Number two, there are people who themselves are deceived, and they will try to lure you into their deception. They will try to lure you away from the way, the hard way that leads to life, by telling you that this big, broad, easy way is, in fact, the way that leads to life. They will try to, do, to deceive you, and Jesus says these are false prophets and false teachers. Thirdly, you will recognize them. He doesn't just give us a warning. He tells us how to circumvent these, this danger, how to get around the danger. You will recognize them by their fruits, and he says this twice. It's a point of emphasis for him, this fruit bearing and being able to recognize fruits. So he says it twice. Metaphorically speaking, just like trees, people produce fruit. They produce fruit by their, their words. They produce fruit by their deeds and their actions, their conduct. That is the fruit of a life. And Jesus says that you will not see good fruit from a diseased tree and that you will not see uh, bad fruit from a, a healthy tree. So you 
let's think about this biblically in, in terms of a, a person's life. So you won't see good fruit from a diseased tree. The fruit of the Spirit, as outlined in Galatians uh, chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, you know, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, temperance, and faith. There's nine of them. So you're not going to see those things, not genuinely, come from someone who is a false teacher, false prophet, a, a, a diseased tree, if you will. No, they, they're going to pretend. Remember, they put on sheep's clothing. They're going to pretend. Uh, they're going to uh, put on a show, but that's all it is, is a show. They want you to think that they're producing f- this good fruit when they, they aren't. There is, there's no real love in them at all, and if you watch them long enough, you'll see it. They don't truly love their neighbor as themselves, but they will exhibit a lot of love for self, and they will try to teach you to do the same. We're, have we heard this in the world? You know, you got to take care of you. You got to look out for you. You got to love you. You do you. There's no real joy in their hearts either. Not, not the, the indestructible joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. Just watch how they handle hardship and see what happens to their joy. Watch how they handle conflict and see what happens to their, their uh, kindness and their meekness and their patience and on and on. So the fruit, their fruit, is not in keeping with righteousness. In other words, it's not born of the Spirit. It's not good fruit. It's diseased. It certainly doesn't stand up to biblical scrutiny. It's diseased fruit. It's bad fruit. It's corrupt fruit. And it's produced from a diseased, corrupt, bad tree. A dead soul. The thing is, this is absolutely contrary to the world's wisdom. Because the unsaved of the world cannot stand, they can't stand it, they cannot stand biblical scrutiny or biblical standards. Because biblical standards and biblical scrutiny absolutely obliterates the whole anything goes, uh, you just do you, you have your truth and I have my truth mentality that's so prevalent these days. There's no such thing as... Uh, as objective truth. It all has become subject, subjective. It's all a matter of, of what my perspective is. That's what they, how they define truth. The thing is, real truth is true no matter what. You don't get to have your set of facts and, and me have a different set of facts. You don't get to have your truth and me have different truth. Truth is truth. What's true for me is true for you. And as Christians, as soon as we point this out, as soon as we dare to say that something is wrong or something is destructive or something is even sinful, even though we may do it the way that the Bible tells us to do it, and we do it in love and kindness and meekness and patience and all those things, what's going to happen to us is we're going to get hit from the world with things like you're being judgmental and you're some kind of phobic. And, you know, you can just pick, fill in the blank there. You know, homophobic, xenophobic, transphobic, uh, sexist, racist, whatever. Just pick one. You'll get called that when you try to call out or name sin. Even if it's, it is, you're, not being con, you're not condemning, you're just trying to be helpful. You're trying to say, hey, brother, I, I see this, this bad fruit and I'm worried about you. I'm concerned for you. So, you know, there's a reason that uh, the 1 Timothy 5 tells us to be above reproach. It's because uh, instead of defending their way, which is a foolish way, it's an ignorant way, it's a lost way, it's an indefensible way, instead of trying to defend what's indefensible, they will instead come at you personally. 
your, and then they'll label you with some label, racist or whatever, um, because you tried, dared to call out sin. So 1 Timothy 5, Paul tells us, hey, we, you need to teach your people to be above reproach. And the reason for that is so they can't find, so that when they Is that better? All right. Now, where was I? The world can't stand scrutiny. I think that's where I was at. They'll come at you personally. We have to stand above reproach, right? So uh, that's why Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 5, teach your people to be above reproach because uh, when, you, when you call out sin, they're going to come at you personally because they can't stand on the merits. The, their way is, is a foolish way, and it cannot stand up against biblical scrutiny. So what they're going to do is they're going to come at you personally, and Paul says, be above reproach. And the reason for that is that way they can't find anything to discredit you. And if they can't find anything to discredit you, what's going to happen? They're just going to make things up about you, and they will. They'll just make it up. Um, but at least you're, you don't have anything honest to be discredited about. So Paul says, be above reproach. Ephesians 4 tells us that there is but one Lord... One faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. So it's a, it's a pretty narrow gate, and we've talked about the narrow gate. You don't get much narrower than one. There is one way, one truth, one baptism, and one Father. And so uh, it's the responsibility. Jesus tells us this twice. He says, you will know them by their fruit. Two times he says this, so he's making an emphasis. So it then becomes our responsibility as Christians to be mindful not just of how we're living. I mean, we, have to, we, we always have to do self-examination and, and be mindful of, of the fruit that we're bearing. But, but Jesus says, watch out, beware, there are false teachers. You have to be mindful, and you're going to know them by their fruit. So you have to be mindful of how they're living, particularly the people who you're allowing to speak into your lives. If you're allowing someone to speak into your life and you're, you're following what they say as teacher, you need to be sure that, that they're not a false teacher. Examine the fruit of their life. And if their fruit doesn't, is not in keeping with righteousness, then they're a false teacher and you need to find someone else to listen to. That's all there is to it. In the context of the church and in the body of Christ, it is, it is more important or it's very important that we, we love one another enough to say to one another, brother, I'm worried because there is fruit here that is not in keeping with righteousness. And on the other side of that coin, we need to love one another to be able to receive that kind of, of correction. And, you know, isn't it funny? We always talk about that from the receiving end. You need to not be offended when someone points out sin in your life. You know, you, we always talk because it's... But I, it's almost as difficult, I would say, in the, in the church today to point it out for fear of, of being ridiculed for fear of being of, of damaging the relationship but is it love for me to just be silent the loving thing to do is to say brother i i'm worried because i'm seeing fruit that i'm and maybe maybe i'm misinterpreting it so help me understand what's happening here but if, if i'm not then we need to do some things to get this corrected 
Because you're on, I see that you're on a path that leads to destruction, and I don't want that for you. That's loving. So that's what we're called to do. Jesus said, you will know them by the false teachers. You will know them by their fruits, right? You'll know them by their fruits. But then later he told his disciples, how are they going to know you? They're going to know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. And that, that brings me to, I think, in, the, in our text, one of the most frightening passages in all of the Bible. It's frightening right up there next to what Jesus said in Matthew 12 when he said that on the day of judgment, we were going to have to give account for every careless and idle word that we say. I mean, think about that. Every careless word that we say. All your Facebook posts and Twitter stuff and the conversations that you have and all the idle, careless words that you say, we're going to have to give account for those. I mean, that's frightening. And it ought to cause us to tremble before a righteous God, before His holiness. But here in in Matthew 7... Uh, We have an equally and I think even more frightening or alarming passage. In verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, so on that day, verse 22, on that day, that means on the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, the day when Everyone is going to be called to stand and and give account for all the idle words that they've said, to give account for everything that they've done. And while they're standing there giving account for every idle word, there will be many people who will stand before Jesus and they will say, verse 22, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then Jesus will say to them, verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So, a couple things here. Um, one, I think I'm going to say it because it needs to be said right off the bat. Uh, we should be clued into the fact that signs and wonders are not the measure of righteousness or godliness. Do you see this here? In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 16 that an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Just because someone claims to work miracles, and even if it appears that they do in fact work miracles, this is not a testimony to the condition of their hearts regarding Christ. How did Jesus say that you would know them? He said you would know them by their signs and wonders? No. He said you'll know them by their fruits. Look, the the Lord can work and does work through anyone and anything he chooses to his glory. In the Old Testament, he worked through a donkey to uh, speak to Balaam. And right uh, just from that story alone, we should glean that, you know, miracles don't, don't make the man. But so should Balaam then, because his donkey spoke, should he have you know, gotten down off the donkey and just followed that donkey around and waited for him to say something else? Should he have started the first church of the holy donkey? I don't, I don't think so. No, and why is that? Because signs are not the measure of righteousness. God used a witch in the Old Testament to speak to Saul. In, in Revelation 13, we're told about the false prophet. This is the second beast in, in John's apocalypse. In Revelation 13, verse 13, 
Let's, let's look at that. It's John's writing, and he says, It performs great signs. That's the false prophet, the second beast. Even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth. And telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who could not worship the, or would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Does that sound like miracles? Does that sound like signs and wonders? I mean, he's calling down fire from heaven. He's causing inanimate objects to have breath and to speak. So listen to what I'm not saying. <laughs> Let me tell you that. What am I not saying? I'm not saying that miracles and signs are wicked at all. I believe that God is a miracle-working God, and He still does that today. I firmly and fully believe that. What I am telling you is that you cannot judge the righteousness of the vessel because of the miracle, because of the signs or wonders. Just because someone prophesies over you or casts out demons or works mighty works, that is no indicator of whether or not they are in fact redeemed. Is the donkey redeemed? No. Jesus said so much. He said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? Cast out demons and do mighty works. And he will say to them, what? I never knew you. In spite of all your works, I never knew you. Out of all your miraculous things, I never knew you. And here's the thing that's even more tragic, is that for every one of those people who will stand before the Lord and say and, and, and throw out these, these excuses and say, Lord, I did all this stuff. I did all these mighty works. I, I cast out demons. I did all this stuff. There will be many more people who will say, Lord, I followed that guy. He, he did mighty works. He did miracles. I, I followed that guy. And Jesus will look at them and say, I never knew you. You should have followed me. You put your faith in him, you should have put your faith in me. Okay, I hope you get the point of that. Um, I think I've said enough about that. Back to the larger issue. Let's consider the text that we have and the picture that Jesus is painting here. He says that there will be many who stand before the Lord on judgment day. And they will be pleading their case before him. They're going to be raising all kinds of, of good works, all the good works that they've done and all the mighty works that they've done in his name. They're going to be raising those and presenting those things as evidence of their righteousness. Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? And Jesus will say, I didn't know you. They will say, Lord, I, we, we built huge, glorious temples for worship in your name. They will say, Lord, we, we donated millions of dollars to charity in your name. Lord, we sold millions of books. Our, our music team is the top of the Christian charts, and we did all that in, in your name. We did mighty works in your name, Lord. Look at the stuff. Look at the things that we've done. So here's how I, I picture it going down based on, on the Scripture. So... On that day, on the day of judgment, we're all standing there before Jesus, right? Everybody. And as the scripture says, Jesus separates the lambs from the goats, the, the righteous from the unrighteous. And there will be people 
like the Pharisees back in Jesus' day, who will find themselves in the unrighteous group. They will find that when the sifting is done and when the sorting is done, they are on the wrong side of the house. And they'll finally get it. You know, they've spent their whole lives doing the whole rule-keeping thing and temple-building thing, and now they, they finally get it. It will dawn on them, I'm, I'm not in the right group. I'm, in, I'm over here on the wrong side. And so they'll feel desperate. And a desperate sensation will overwhelm them, and they'll be thinking of all the reasons and all the arguments and all of the, the things they can present to the Lord to make the case that they should be allowed into heaven rather than being cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so, in a desperate act, they will come to Jesus and they will come with all of these reasons. I did this. Look what I did. Look at the things that that we built. Look at the stuff. I did all of this in in your name. But, But do you see the problem? Where's the focus? I did this. Look what I built. This is, I, I did this for you. I did, I, I did all of this for you. I did this in your name. I, I stamped your name all over it. I built this building for you. I wrote that book for you. I, I, I gave money for you. I did it all. Isn't that what they said? Did we not? Did we not? Look at what we did. See my righteousness? See my works? But our righteousness is as filthy rags, is it not? In fact, it's not righteousness at all, for there is none righteous, no, not one. And the more they shout out, they're just they shout out all their accomplishments, and the more they try to build the case with the hay and the wood and the straw of their good works and their works here, the more it is consumed by the fire of testing in the righteousness of Christ. Everything they throw out there just gets turned into ash by the fire of testing. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm not just making that up. It's not just an imagination on my part. The scripture says it. And they're going to watch their works, all their works, just get turned to ash in front of them. And, and, and their desperation, as they, as they keep trying to build this case and just watching it crumble and turn to ash, their desperation will then turn into rage. Because their false love for Jesus will be exposed for what it truly is, hatred. So when Jesus declares, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. Number one, he will be totally just and totally righteous in doing so. And number two, the condemned will totally hate him for it. I don't think there's going to be anyone saying, oh, I wish I had done better, because that's repentance. I don't think there's going to be anyone saying, I wish I had, had listened, because that's repentance. No, what's going to happen is they're going to spit all of their rage at him. Like Moby Dick, if my heart were a cannon, if my chest were a cannon, I'd spit, shoot my heart at, at you. That's exactly what will happen. Didn't Jesus say, if you're not for me, 
you're against me. That's pretty black and white, isn't it? If you don't love me, you hate me. If you're not gathering with me, you're scattering. That's Matthew 12. It's a shocking and desperate sight that we're going to see when Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's frightening. And I said this is one of the most frightening texts in Scripture, and I've, I've always said that. I've, I've always held it up as a, as a frightening passage. But the thing is, as, as the redeemed of the Lord, we don't have to be scared of it. Not if you're in Christ. It's a shocking passage to be sure, but it doesn't need to cause fear. We should let it serve as a cautionary tale. But it's not something that we should be afraid of. In fact, it should be a source of great joy for us. Because now if you'll consider the contrast between what happens with the unrighteous and what will happen with God's redeemed. Just the the sheer difference. I mean, such a huge, wide, vast different story for what will happen with God's redeemed. This should be a source of great joy and gladness for us. Because on that day, we will stand, we will stand, and we will be sifted, just like, just, just like everybody else, the, the sheep from the goats. And when we're standing there among the sheep, we're going to have to give account for everything, every word in our life. Everyone's going to have to give an account for their life. We will stand to give an account, and we will have no need for desperate pleas to build our case. On that day when we stand before the Lord, we will have no impulse, none, no impulse at all to say, look, look at my works, look at my righteousness, look at the things that I did. We have no impulse for that. What we will say instead instead is that I have no boast in anything. All that I have is Christ. That will be our boast. All I have is Christ. Is Christ. And church, that makes all the difference. Amen. Amen. So when the lost of this world are desperately trying to plead their own case before the throne, Jesus, who is the judge, is also our advocate and he is our case. Amen. All we have to do is point to the shed blood of Christ. Amen. Did I trust him? Did I trust him? Did I trust him? Or did I try to build it on my own? He is all our hope and righteousness. There's a song that I, I absolutely love, and I think it captures this well, and I'll, I'll close with that. It's called All I Have is Christ, how aptly named. It goes like this. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought that I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my... You see the the direction here. You did, you did, you did. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me, and now all I know is grace. Now, Lord, I will be yours alone and live so all might see that the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way that you choose and let my song forever be. My only boast is you. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ.
Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Christ. Lord, let us be ever grateful that you have sent us a Savior. Let us be ever grateful that you condescended to be one of us, Lord, to live a perfect life without sin. And then to die. To take our punishment and our judgment upon him. Lord, that we might stand on that day and say, all I have is Christ, and that is enough. Lord, I ask that you bless us as we go our way. Lord, bless us in our fellowship today. Bless the food and all the hands that have prepared it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.